Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Lord, we do thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be here to glorify you. And I ask that all glory would be to you and for you. I ask that you would give me the words to say. Help me to be clear in my communication so that your glory can be loudly proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, first off, this final song leads me straight into um, the verse that you see here. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn. I'm going to go ahead and read Romans chapter 11. It'll be the last portion of the chapter, verses 33 through 36. This is really the heart of everything that I want to do in Mexico. And what the Lord has been showing me, I'll be talking a little bit more of some of the things that he's been revealing to me and showing to me and blessing me with from his word. And this has definitely been a large portion of it. And this is my prayer as I go to Mexico and wherever else the Lord has me to go in my life. This is ultimately what I want to be. Verse 33, Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God's glory is the greatest thing that we can strive for. And that has been my heart through this, what I desire to do through this opportunity that the Lord has given me to glorify him in everything because of what he has done for me. Um, He has given me life. He has redeemed me. And I can do nothing greater than glorify him with my life. Um, Before I talk about the Tarahumara people in Mexico, I'd like to just give you a brief update of where I've been in the last few years and also what the Lord has been teaching me through his word in recent times. So as Cody mentioned, I've been for the last six years uh, part of a ministry called Alert. Um, With all of these things, I've got a brief time here, so I will try and be clear. Um, Alert is a ministry for young men out in Big Sandy, Texas, East Texas, 100 miles east of Dallas, and has been a fantastic portion of my life where I have seen the Lord work um, through the many trials that he brought through that. It is a military type of structure, and this is very rigorous and can be very difficult at times, but the Lord has taught me to lean on him. Through that, I was able to go all the way through the program and graduate. I did their paramedic program and then I'm a certified paramedic. Um, After doing that, I volunteered for a little while working in leadership and basic training, which is the first portion of the training that everybody goes through. Um, In 2011, then, I began also volunteering at Alert and then working for Champion EMS full-time on the ambulance service and did that for a a total of about three years that I was working for them. Um, The last stint of my time 
This last year, just over a year, I had the privilege of being what's called a sergeant major. And basically, that is the guy that is in charge of all the other guys. So I was responsible for getting up early with the men, for leading their PT, physical training in the morning, leading any inspections, any evening activities or daily activities that needed to happen. That all went through me. I kind of scheduled and made sure everything happened. On top of that, and by far the biggest responsibility, was I was also responsible for their spiritual well-being. And that responsibility was one of the greatest challenges I have ever faced. Um, Yet one of the most beneficial and one of the most revealing to me. Um, I'd like to go ahead and turn to uh, Psalm chapter 103. This passage has been my cry, literally, and my joy, and something I have looked to for comfort as well. I'm going to read through verse 1 through verse 14, and I want you to think um, the first verse is, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Think as we read through the rest, how David describes those things that we can bless him for. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. Excuse me, I lost my place. Verse 9, thank you. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. In the experience that I had in getting to work with young men and the opportunities where they came to me and asked for advice or counsel in a particular way that they were struggling or were looking into and wanted some counsel on, the times where I had to maybe confront them about different things and to give counsel The biggest thing that did for me was revealed in me what it was that I was struggling with and what ways I maybe wasn't giving my all to the Lord. Um, It was very revealing to sit and talk to a young man and say, you know, I think you need to work on this area of your life. And then look at myself and say, (laughs) I'm kind of doing the same thing. And it was a big motivator to say, okay, what maybe is in my life that I've just kind of uh, tossed along the wayside? Oh, that's not a big deal. 
Uh, maybe I don't need to work on that yet. I can work on this area. I can work on that area. And through that, it revealed to me all the many ways that I don't follow Christ. And as that came upon me, it was an overwhelming feeling to think, oh, I need to be perfect. I need to uh, be the leader that I'm supposed to be. I need to have all the answers. I need to make sure I am doing everything just so. And I realized very quickly that I could not. And it was beyond my capabilities. And that's what brought me to this passage. I was reading through the Psalms. And I got to this point and and I said, Lord, look at all the things that you do. Specifically in those first um, few verses, verse 3, 4, and 5. Forgives all of our iniquity. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies us with good. And he renews us like the eagles. Such an encouraging passage for me to read as I was feeling under that pressure of needing to be guiding others, yet realizing my own faults. And so this past year has really just been a demonstration of God's love and faithfulness to me. And he's been working in me the mindset of blessing the Lord in everything that I find comes my way, be it the hard times, be it the good times. Um, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and through those hard times, for from him and through him and to him be all glory. The glory of Christ is um, such a worthy cause, um, for lack of a better way to describe it, and something that I desire to give all of my life towards. Um, With all of that, as it relates to Mexico, um, the Lord has for many, many years in my life placed a a desire and a draw towards that country. Um, Since probably 10 or 11 years old, that's always been my stated goal, was to be a missionary in Mexico. I didn't know how, I didn't know in what way, I didn't know when, um, that is just what I knew I was going to be doing. And through the years, I've prayed uh, many times, Lord, what, what would you have me do down there? How do you want me to get there? In what way do you want me to serve? And through Alert, um, he really blessed me in the medical program that they have there. Um, I did it to kind of see what it was like. And because it would be useful skills no matter where I went in life and loved it. Um, Did the EMT basic and then decided to continue on through the paramedic program. And since then, he has continued to develop, you know, Evan, I have prepared you for this medically. Um, You love it. You have enjoyed it. And he's presented many opportunities since then for me to do short-term missions trips, doing medical work. In 2011, I was able to go to Mexico on the invite of a friend who had also done EMT with me at Alert. And he is Mexican and was from down there and knew I was interested in missions, knew I was interested in medical missions. And he was currently volunteering with the Red Cross on the ambulances in the city where he lived and was at that point in time about to go and visit some friends of his 
who work for this mission, which involves a clinic in the mountains for the Tarahumara people. And they're the second largest indigenous people group in Mexico. And so this is just one small portion of um, the work within the Tarahumara people. Um, so he invited me to come down and spend some time down there. I ended up getting to spend about two, two and a half months down there, both a month working with the Red Cross and volunteering there, as well as a month at this clinic in the mountains. Since then, I've been able to visit several times to see the work a little bit closer and to be involved with what they are doing. So the Tarahumara people. Who are the Tarahumara um, like I said, they're the second largest indigenous people group in Mexico. Um, estimates are somewhat vague on population. 2006, they estimated about 50 to 70,000. I believe now they're looking at about 60 to 100,000 um, of the Tarahumara people. They're spread throughout the Copper Canyon. Um, years and years ago in the 16th century when Cortez invaded Mexico, um, there was conflict between them as well as the Tarahumara, and Cortez was by far the more powerful. So the Tarahumara continued drifting up north into what's called the Copper Canyon, a very uh, desert region, very uh, mountainous, and also very rugged. Um, they have retracted then into those mountains since then and have continued to live there. A very, very poor people. They do not have much in the way of uh, physical goods, money, um, and live in a lot of darkness. Um, their belief um, is very complicated and very complex, and I only understand a little bit of it. They are mostly animistic, yet have some Catholic influence from other Catholic missionaries that have, through probably the last 100, 150 years, have also sought to um, minister to the Tarahumara. So you can see in the things that they believe as they talk about it or as you see them uh, living their daily life, you can see different portions of Catholicism that they've simply just taken and added into their beliefs and added into their culture. Um, that has been a trend of theirs is to hold on to the things that they believe um, the superstitions that they have, the fears that they have, and simply add from what others have taught them to what they believe. Um, very few have been able to fully set aside the culture that they are so proud of and desire to continue in and set that all aside to follow something new, which presents some very difficult challenges for the missionaries that are down there there are very few Tarahumara believers. They are considered an unreached people group. Um, the scripture has been translated into their language. Within their language, however, there are three different dialects. Um, so in reality, only one region, one portion of them has the scripture translated into their native language. The region that I am going to does not actually have the Bible translated into their dialect at the present time. Um, literacy also presents a difficulty to the scriptures being um, spread throughout their people group. So that is also part of, part of the work that's going on. Where do they live? They live kind of northwestern part of Mexico. 
that big box is the general region where they are all spread out throughout the Copper Canyon. The Copper Canyon itself is a total of about six canyons that are all interconnected, and that whole region and area is about four times the size of the Grand Canyon, and some portions of the canyon are in fact deeper than the Grand Canyon as well. So very rugged terrain and very widespread. Um, the peoples themselves, they live very spread out from each other in family units and then um, keep themselves spaced from each other. So this whole canyon is just dispersed with this people group uh, living in poor circumstances and living remote and away from uh, the ease with which to give them the gospel and to present the gospel to them. It can be difficult to get it to them. How do they live? Um, I would say the grand majority now will live in some sort of adobe hut such as this. Some still do live in caves or overhangs of the rocks and the cliffs. Um, this is more in a community on the way out to the clinic. Um, and some, the more poor, will live in something similar to this, a lean-to, a shack with blankets, with boards, whatever they can find to make a shelter, to guard them from the wind. Being desert, being about 6,500 feet up in elevation, it does get very cold at night. And so keeping warm is a difficulty of theirs sometimes because of their conditions and the poverty with which they live in. Um, they do farm, um, mostly corn and beans. Corn and beans are their staple crops. Uh, you can see by the picture it is very, very rocky and not a very rich soil. So they rely very heavily on the rains that come during the rainy season, during the summer. Um, but uh, growing crops is very difficult and is not usually ever anything beyond simply sustaining their own basic needs for food. Um, some of the more wealthy then will have some chickens, goats are also very common, some cattle, not near as much. And so a lot of them are shepherds, and a lot of the children will then shepherd the flocks. Um, they mostly reserve the meat for special circumstances or ceremonies that they might have. Um, so the meat is a delicacy for them. Um, also running. And the Tarahumara are very well known for their ability at long-distance running. Um, they have... Their name and their language is Raramuri, which means the running people. They take great pride in their running. It, um, their culture revolves around running and races that they do. Um, it doesn't have it in this picture. They have a little wooden ball that they flick forward with their foot, and they run after it, they chase it, and they flick it again, and they continue running. And they will do that for 100 miles plus. Um, and just in one go, just begin running. So that is a large portion of their culture. Their idols, if you will, will be the best runners. Um, you're most well known by how well you can run. Um, the current work that is going on down there. This is a picture of the front of the clinic. 
that they have out in the mountains. Um, the city where they this group bases most of their work out of is the Ciudad Cuauhtémoc, and it is about five hours from the clinic on mountainous roads, dirt roads, um, so it can be difficult to get to. You need a truck to be able to get out there. Um, about a five-hour drive into the mountains is where this is situated. They've been doing medical work out there for about 12 to 14 years. I don't know the exact date on when they started. It was founded by an American who went down to Mexico in the 80s and through his time went through medical school in Mexico to be able to better serve the physical needs of the people group down there. And he started this clinic in the mountains 12, 14 years ago and has been continuing it since. He is still a part of the ministry, but in a different um, facet. He's a little more in the States now, but has turned it over most of the medical work to the two Mexican doctors that currently work with the group, as well as then they have a nurse from Germany that helps with the medical work. There are several other families that work with the mission as a whole, doing literacy. Um, they are seeking to teach them how to read and write both their language as well as Spanish. And also an aviation side of the ministry, um, just probably uh, 500 yards or so from the clinic out on the plateau, they have a small dirt airstrip where they're able to get small planes in and out, both to uh, bring people in or to then fly patients out that maybe some need some more advanced care. Uh, the couple times that I've been there, there have been patients that have needed surgery, which they're not capable of doing here. So we've been able to call a plane and get them evacuated much more quickly, much more comfortably than doing the five-hour drive back out of the mountains. So the aviation side is definitely a large blessing in that we can bring other doctors with different specialties. Dentistry is a large one. They will bring dentists out for a day, two days, to be able to um, serve the dental needs of the people group as well. The medical side is what I will be joining in. Here's a picture of inside the clinic, our x-ray machine that we have. It's what they at least used to use on Black Hawk, Black Hawk helicopters, and someone was gracious enough to donate that. That is uh, very helpful in the work down there. Um, this lady had a bone injury for many years that we were taking an x-ray of. This was just this last summer in June that we were there. So the clinic work continues to be a large portion of it, a um, very needy portion of the ministry. Um, lots and lots and lots of physical needs. The people group themselves, they don't have the facilities to be able to receive the care they need, nor then the knowledge a lot of times as well to know how to best take care of themselves. Um, the biggest needs down there um, one of the biggest would be malnutrition among the kids. Um, that is a severe problem. It's estimated that only about 60% of the children will make it to the age of five. Um, a lot of that 
is simply because of the diet that they have. A lot of it will be corn. As the children get older, a lot of times the parents will just switch them straight to water with ground corn in the water. And they call it kobisi. And that's what they will feed their children a lot of times because that's all that they have. Um, So the children get very malnourished. A lot of the children then at a very young age will be sent out into the mountains to um, watch over the flocks where they suffer malnutrition, not enough food, not enough water at at times, as well as in the cold and harsh temperatures. Um, It is a very large problem amongst the people groups. So the clinic is doing a study and doing a work trying to um, educate the people on how best to take care of their children, how to give them the nutrients they need, they need, as well as then they have come up with a mixture that gives the nutrients that the little children need that they can mix with the corn. It's, it consists of dried milk, some different vitamins and minerals that can be mixed in water to give to the kids. So we bring that, and they bring the corn, and whatever amount of corn, ground corn that they bring to us, we will mix one-to-one with this mixture to be able to feed them. So each week they come, they can double their food supply if they arrive. We will then weigh the child um, and notate that, mix their food, and then see on a weekly basis how things are improving. Uh, Along with that, they are bringing water filters and seeking to do some sort of health education along with the weighing of the children and the giving them food as well as then beginning and ending with some sort of a small um, devotional. Um, This may be a difficult word to use because the culture is very different. It wouldn't quite be considered a devotional, but letting them know that we are coming because of Christ and not just to help their physical needs, but we desire to get deeper than just the physical and um, usually end up doing some songs and trying to teach them some songs, teaching them about the Lord. So that is most of the medical work that's happening. Definitely a large, large need. Um, Here's a picture out on the runway of a plane. The lady that was sitting in the, um, on the bed, she is right here. So we were getting ready to fly her out to another mission hospital founded by an American surgeon to receive some surgical care that she was needing. So the aviation side is definitely a large blessing in able to do that. Um, How you can help. The biggest, biggest thing that I could ask for would be for prayer. Um, I think so much of David and the Psalms. The Psalms have been a huge, huge part of my life this last year. And his cries to the Lord of joy, of sorrow, and his realization that nothing comes except through Christ. Um, Everything must pass through Christ, Um, be it good times, be it hard times. um, The Lord knows them all, and he knows his purposes through that. So the best way you can support me is to be in prayer for me. Um, biggest ways to pray that <coughs> myself and that the team would be effective in communicating the gospel. They are 
closed to the gospel in the sense that they are closed to other people encroaching on their beliefs and on their culture. Uh, they don't want to change their culture. They don't want to um, change the things that they believe. They live in fear and superstition, um, which then makes it difficult for them to move out of that fear to believe something else. They're very shy people. Um, public shaming is one of the biggest punishments you could ever give to a Taromata person. Very easily offended, very shy. So it can be difficult to just jump out and start doing some street preaching. Um, that, in their culture, immediately severs relationships. Um, it takes a building of a relationship with the people and with them and truly getting them to know that we are teaching them truth, not trying to change them and their culture and the way that they live. We want them to take this belief system themselves and change their culture and the things that they do and the things that they believe because of the truth that they now know. So prayer for effectiveness in that communication the cultural differences, the language barriers that are there um, have made it very difficult to be able to effectively share. Um, pray for me as I head down. What I will be first getting involved with is language training. Um, probably about the first year we'll be doing language and culture studies. Um, that'll start in February. We'll begin an intensive class that has been started and initiated by this team and an American couple that worked down there for many, many years have developed a language school that they've been doing at different missions amongst the um, Tarahumara, teaching the language to those missionaries working with them. So I'll have the opportunity to jump straight into that. That'll be uh, Monday through Friday, 8 to 3 um, all-day deal. So it will be an intimidating prospect, but also um, I'm looking forward to it as well. So pray for grace, pray for peace as I live in my second language and I learn my third language. Um, pray that the Lord will be my sustenance in that time and that I would trust in Him for the strength to continue on when I don't feel like maybe doing what what it is that he has in front of me. Um, those would be the best ways to pray. But prayer would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, financially, it's estimated for a single missionary about $700 a month um, for rental of living space as well as in food and such. And the Lord has been gracious to provide that. And larger expenses coming up will be, I will need to be looking for a truck to be able to transport myself to and from the clinic here in the future. Those are the financial things coming up. and would appreciate any support in that way as well. You can get in contact with me if you would be interested in supporting. But I would ask for prayer above all things. So... As I close, I guess I'll do, let me take a couple questions, and then I've got just one more little quote. Yes, sir. Two questions. <coughs> First of all, are you going to be living among the people 
initially while I'm doing the language, I will be based in the city for the first six months, which that will involve a lot of the people as well. Part of that training is doing um, an hour, two hours a day then of language helper time. So they've used that to both get um, us good practice interacting with the people where they'll take a native speaker and have them come in on a one-to-one basis and practice and practice the language. Then they've also used that as an opportunity to build relationships with the people and to share the gospel with the language helpers, as they call them. So there will definitely be a lot of interaction with the people group, but it will be more in the urban setting and in the city. After that would start then more of the immersion practice of the language and being out in the mountains living amongst the people. Um, the clinic area itself is a, a small compound, if you will. They have the clinic, um, the four homes where the different missionary families that are out there live, as well as a small schoolhouse, and then the storage sheds. And then um, we also have three little one-room adobe huts for patients that need a little more long-term care and need to be sticking around the clinic in the general area so that we can continue to monitor, continue to test, and then also as well some, uh, many times, we get patients that have hiked 10, 12 hours to get to the clinic, um, can't just leave after they've been evaluated and things have been assessed. So they'll stay the night there and do that. So. Have you, have you gotten, I appreciate and respect the fact that you're trying not to change the people, but to give them the changing life of the gospel to take back to their people. Is, there, is it a us-against-them kind of a thing, or have you got some... Indigenous people that are helping with that, or is it is it really the white guys against the Hispanic guys, the <laughs> Indians, and, and you know what? That's a hard thing. So you've got somebody within the culture who is helping to make that transition. Yes, there are um, several. I, can, I think two specific individuals that are. Uh, I think uh, Tencha and Cornelio are two Tanomaras that have been working probably the last five years specifically with the missionaries and helping in the clinic, helping with translation, helping um, clean up, helping with water runs, filling up the water tank for out there. And they have been a big, big part of getting, uh, narrowing that separation down. Um, It is very easy for them to look at a separation and so part of the goal and the focus has been to understand them better, to what do you believe? And not so much of a contradiction of their beliefs, but let's do a mutual sharing back and forth of what we believe has been the biggest, um, the main thing happening there. And they have had probably three, four, five or so that are working directly with the mission, indigenous people groups, and getting them out. They're kind of our couriers and messengers, um, promoting us, promoting um, what we're doing, and um, presenting a good name to the rest of their their kin. So, yes, sir. As far as the the one Bible that's in theirs, I'm not sure what, quote, version it might be called. It is completely in their language, 
and not Spanish at all. Um, but I'm, mm-hmm. They've used mostly then the Spanish Bible. They have been translating and have translated a lot of the Bible stories and different Bible lessons into this particular dialect. Um, but currently, if they tried to use that other Bible, this people they would not be able to understand it. Um, the dialects are that that different. In fact, this lady that we took to the other area of the mountains to get the sur- surgical care, the translator there at the hospital had a difficult time getting the message across. She couldn't even tell her just the basic, we need you to turn over onto your side. Um, couldn't get across because the dialects were that different. A lot of the men will have a decent grasp on Spanish as they have kind of gone in and out of the city. They may go to the city to find some work. It's a very agricultural city, so they'll go down during harvest time, a lot of the men to try and work, to try and raise some money. So a lot of the men do. I would say most of the women do not speak Spanish. Um, And then even amongst the men, there's a varying level at which they speak it. The older, the younger, um, pretty much just speak their native language. Said that they had, you had um, there's a, just a few believers in this people group. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, have you met them? I have gotten to meet some of them. There are a couple that are there working with this mission specifically, a couple hours away in another village. I have not had the opportunity to go down there. There is a small church, about 12, 15 believers, um, run by a Taramara man who's kind of taken charge. So. Um, a couple that works with this mission where I'm going to, they've kind of taken it upon themselves to be going out. Usually on the weekends, they will go out to encourage, to minister, to help um, sustain that church and do that. The community out there doesn't want to allow any foreigners to live in their community. The communities need to vote. Uh, All the elders need to vote on allowing someone non-Tarahumara to live in their community. Um, so they haven't allowed that couple to live in the town with them, but have allowed them to come and to help and assist in any way. So in that area, there are. So um, you've, you've had contact with these believers. Mm-hmm. So did you ever ask them how did they make the transition mentally from their culture and their belief system to the truth? Hmm. You know, I haven't asked that specifically. I know amongst those couple believers, they it took a lot of, or there was a lot of discussion between them and their families, um, and was a resistance from the families to allow them to believe these different things. I haven't delved completely into all that went on from their side of things. You know, okay, what were they thinking? What were they learning? But the ones that have believed have not been fully shunned by their family, but their family has kind of said, okay, fine, mm-hmm. go do your own thing. Um, and would they separate from the family? I mean, would they, would they literally be apart from their family because of their belief system? 
Um, not all the time. These couple that are at this mission specifically are still welcome in their family's home. They, for the most part, live with us at the clinic and work and do that there. And are you going down with anybody else? Are you going down with, you mentioned you're going, uh, that there's a team down there, which you described, but are you going yes. with anybody else from the States that they're making the commitment that you are at the same time? No. Just myself, as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. A good question. Um, the Catholic Church is is definitely a foe to true Christianity being brought to, especially a lot of times, the indigenous people groups. And they do have a lot of power and influence in the government and what goes and what what stays. So they do have to be careful... Um, in regards to the Catholic Church about what they're doing and and being aware of of who they're talking to and how they talk. So being careful about sharing the um, beliefs with with which they are basing all of their work on, depending on who they're talking to, because going through the Catholic Church, they really do have the authority to say, whoop, you're out of here. You can no longer work as had happened in the past with the American doctor that founded this clinic. He had been working in a different capacity in a different portion of Mexico, and the Catholic Church didn't like what he was doing and got that area to send him away and not allow him to do any more ministry in that way. So the Catholic Church, there's, I believe, many, many, many years ago, there was some physical persecution from the Catholic Church. None of that is continuing but the continuation of the Roman Catholic Church to eliminate missionaries from the area and try and get them kicked out governmentally um, continues to be somewhat of a challenge to work against. The government in their involvement with the people, I believe, is similar to the states and how we work with the Native Americans here. Uh, I don't know exactly what's involved. The community that we are a part of out in the mountains does have a small governmental clinic as well as a government school. And so they they subsidize to a degree this people group. They have them as part of their government and allow them to do their own thing, um, yet still being under the Mexican government. So there's that separation, and then there's the government also then trying to help and support them in, in their poverty and, and do some different things. I don't know exactly where those confines are. So what are you going to eat? What am I going to eat? <laughs> Mexican food. <laughs> um, for my diet, it will basically be, it'll be different than here, yes, but it'll be the main, just a normal Mexican family is what I would have to eat. We have solar power out at the clinic. They will have small refrigerators. So most refrigerated goods, there's not a large um, portion of those. Fresh produce is more difficult to obtain, but we're able to stock up in the city and um, 
store there at the clinic as well as there's a usual continual process of some somebody going back to the city and somebody coming back out to the clinic so there's a lot of communication back and forth and you know hey bring some more milk bring some more eggs bring bring some things so and what's the name of the city the name of the city is Cuauhtémoc I can write it down for you if you'd like <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, initially, I'll pretty much all be in the city for six months. And then once normal life gets going, most of them, the other clinic workers, they will work about four weeks out at the clinic and then come back to restock, um, regroup for a few days, and then head back out. So it's kind of a four weeks in, one week out, four weeks in, one week out. So kind of a process going, going back and forth. Do you think that you're going to join right in with the runners? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Um, when I was there this summer, I, being in shape here in the States, I did about a three-and-a-half-mile loop up and down the canyons and couldn't complete it without stopping. And did, you so. run, but did you run with them, or did you run by yourself? I ran by myself. <laughs> uh, there was absolutely no way I was going to keep up with them. So, well, great. Yes, last question. Uh, you said you're in Guatemoc and it's like your home base, but then mm-hmm. you actually go out to the clinic site or whatever it is. Where, what is the name of that village or town? The name of that is Nararachi, is the name of that town. <laughs> so a small, small little community out in the mountains. So we call it La Mesa. It's on top of a big plateau or big table. So Have you heard of Noragachi? I have not. Okay, yeah, I could show you on a map at some point. Um, All right, well, I better close here. I just want to uh, read this quote from David Livingston. Um, I look at this opportunity as a privilege. It is a privilege to serve the Lord and not a sacrifice. I want to just read what David Livingston has said. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Um, So I'd just like to encourage all of us in whatever work the Lord has in front of you, Let's do away with the thought of sacrifice and look at it as a privilege. And I say to as Paul in Philippians, if you remember he was in prison at the time, to put behind those things that lie behind us, to rejoice in what Christ has for us now, and to set our minds and press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And let's do that with a thought of a privilege 
instead of a sacrifice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to serve you and your kingdom. I ask that all of us who would call ourselves Christians, who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, would seek to serve you in everything that we do in our daily lives and the way we serve the others around us and let us do so with the mindset of a privilege bringing all glory to you for through you and to you are all things and to you be glory forever. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.